All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hyde Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you do need to put your name on a waiting list to sign up for Chen. He will accept new subscribers uh, during the first two weeks of the new year. Uh, so go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Put your name on a waiting list, and you'll be hearing from us uh, immediately in the start of the new year uh, to sign up for Chen's letter. He does cap the number of subscribers, so if you're interested in subscribing, uh, it's imperative that you go there as soon as possible. Put your name on that waiting list. Also, at jtaylormedia.com, uh, you can listen to uh, two recent interviews that I did with Chen. The first one dealt with a couple of extremely exciting biotech stocks that Chen is hect- uh, actively invested in. Uh, and then last week, uh, I posted an interview with Chen in which he provided his outlook on the energy sector. So uh, very, very interesting and insightful stuff from Chen Lin. There is uh, no doubt, though, the best way to uh, – uh, actually, I will be covering more of Chen's uh, – uh, sort of the, the Chen's investments, his top picks in my own newsletter, Jay Taylor's uh, Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. But the best way to uh, really profit from Chen is to go to uh, sign up for his own newsletter Again, miningstocks.com. To sign up for my newsletter as well at miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show uh, and making it one of the more uh, one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, uh, like to encourage you to continue sending your questions, uh, comments, criticisms, and praises along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four Taylor at gmail.com. Also follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia. Uh, I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week are Dynacore Gold Mines and Dynacert Inc. Dynacert uh, designs and it really has designed a, a transportable hydrogen generator that's used in motor vehicles that reduces fuel consumption by between 10 and 20 percent and also vastly reduces emissions. And uh, it actually, uh, I believe it is, it's been tested with uh, a number of large vehicles, trucks, uh, Pepsi-Cola trucks, for example, uh, in the Detroit area. And the, uh, uh, the veracity of this technology, uh, I believe, is proven. Anyway, we'll be talking to the CEO of this company sometime in the next uh, few weeks uh, to tell you more about Dynacert, Inc., um, I've written a report on this company for my own subscribers. It is available free of charge at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Uh, to explain the, this company and its story, um, I believe it's a good one, and I'm very proud to have them as sponsors. 
Also, a word about Novo Resources. They've been a sponsor of this show uh, of late, uh, not currently, but they have been over the last year or so. I spoke with uh, Dr. Quentin Henning, uh, the, com- the CEO of the company, uh, and he. this is a company that's getting ready to test market or to test mine its gold uh, production from the Beaton's Creek project in uh, Australia. It will be going into production on a small scale to test mine. And Dr. Henning said that he's considering allowing shareholders to buy gold at some steep discounted price of, say, around maybe perhaps around $800 an ounce for August 2016 delivery. Well, they will be producing a small amount of gold, and he's using this. He figures it's better to let his shareholders profit from financing the company rather than a third party. Uh, to do the same. So it, it may be something you want to check out, and we'll be letting you know more about that in the future uh, if, in fact, the, uh, from a legal point of view, they can go ahead and do that. Um, you can listen also to a recent interview I did with Dr. Henning, who has updated us on uh, Novo Resources. Uh, it's a podcast at J. Taylor Media. J. Taylor Media, go to the podcast page there. Well, I've titled today's show, Can We Depend on Fed Omniscience into 2016? David McElvinney, Jeff Deist, and Michael Oliver uh, will be with me. Michael, in just a moment or two, will be with me here. So uh, the day following the Fed's rate rise, that's the first one in nine years, Larry Fink, who heads up the multi-trillion dollar hedge fund BlackRock, praised Janet Yellen for her brilliant market manipulation as chairwoman at the Federal Reserve Bank. On the other hand, uh, there are those that are making an argument that the Fed has really essentially destroyed capitalism by disallowing price discovery for capital, smashing down the interest rates, not allowing uh, really capital to find its equilibrium price. Indeed, a case can be made that the global economy, I believe, is heading into a deeper depression than our grandparents experienced even in the 1930s. We hope and pray that's not the case, but there, I think there, you can make a claim to that, uh, to that, to that end. So does Ms. Yellen and other federal, uh, let's say, Fed PhD economists actually possess this godlike knowledge to know exactly what words to utter to launch a utopian world, as Mr. Fink suggests Janet Yellen is doing? Uh, or should we put our faith in the wisdom of men or in the markets as we head into 2016? And given this massive manipulation of markets, how should we plan our lives and our investment portfolios? Before we go to break, I, I do have Michael Oliver, as I just noted, he's with me, uh, to give us his ideas about what he sees in the charts. And those charts, I think Michael does an excellent job of reading the language of the markets, the wisdom of the markets, which I believe, as a free market advocate, is far superior to any PhD from Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, or all three for that matter. So um, Michael is here with me to talk about what he sees in his charts for stocks, gold, and oil. But before I say hello to Michael, let me strongly suggest that you go to Oliver MSA, OliverMSA.com to learn more about Michael's excellent work. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be here. Always good to have you. Um, in your week's, weekly message that uh, you sent out this past weekend, you provided some very interesting charts on uh, the S&P 500 gold and oil. Over the two-day period uh, recently, uh, when the Fed was deciding on whether or not to raise rates, uh, as I just noted, Mr. Fink was praising Janet Yellen for her excellent uh, f- work there uh, at the Fed. Uh, but a price chart that you showed revealed that although there there has been some weakness recently in the equity prices, the S&P still, uh, is still 
quite a ways above the S&P 500. The S&P 500, uh, let's say the price of the S&P 500 is still quite a ways above the 200-week moving average. And, you know, a lot of people take comfort from the market's action. And I see today the equity market, the S&P is up almost three-quarters. Actually, it's getting you know, about three-quarters of a point or so. Uh, shouldn't the genius of our Federal Reserve, combined with a nice cushion between this, uh, say, the 500 the S&P 500 price and its 200-day move, moving average give people a reason to be comfortable as we head into the new year, Michael? No, not really. Uh, by the way, it's 200-week. Uh, you, you said it right the first time. Uh, the 200-week average is something most people don't ever look at. They think of the 200-day as, as long-term. I, I go out to the 200-week uh, uh-huh. often when I look at very long-term momentum. It's about like a four-year average, actually, if you figure it out. Uh, you return to it constantly over history. If you run a Dow or S&P, go back a century on the Dow or about 50 years in the S&P, 60 years in the S&P, uh, you'll see that you constantly return to your three-year average, your 200-week average. It's like a heartbeat. I don't care what the trend is. You, you return to the mean, and quite often you oscillate below it. Uh, in fact, the last drop we had was in 2011, uh, quite a few years ago. That came down to the 200-week average mm-hmm. and held. Uh, I suspect the next time you won't ultimately hold it, but that's down on the 1700s right now. Uh, and I'm of the opinion if the S&P drops back within about uh, 70 or 80 points of the lows we saw in August. Now, August low was 1867. I'm arguing if you see something down around 1950 in the next week or two, uh, you're going right on through, and you'll probably go straight to the 200-week average. That may be something holding off until next year. Because, uh, in fact, I see in most markets right now, most major markets, T-bonds, gold, um, oil even, um, and, and the S&P, I see 2015 as a incubation year for trend reversal. In other words, mm-hmm. the prior markets that were going up for four, five, six years uh, then stalled. The S&P has had its narrowest year in many years on a percent basis. In fact, right now we're barely down on the year. But this, the action has been either side of unchanged. Gold has had one of the narrowest price years, measured percent high to the low of the year, uh, in the last five. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the same is true with oil. Uh, oil's at a forty dollar, let's see, a sixty twenty five dollar range this year. Last year was a huge ranging year. The year before that was also big. A lot of markets have gone into curled up in a ball and created confusion. You know, they're up, down, up, down. You can't tell which way they're going. In fact, they're not going anywhere significantly. Uh, oil's collapse was last year. Gold's collapse was 2013 and so forth. I think we're setting up for 2016 to be a launch in the new direction. Mm-hmm. And I've done some work on T-bonds today that really uh, smacked me in the face. Uh, that uh, suggests strongly that we're going to have a rise in long rates next year. Now, right now, the, the long rates, the safe market, the treasury bond, T-notes and so forth, aren't behaving like high yield. Uh, they're, they're, they're staying low in their yield, and the prices are steady. However, next year that looks like it'll change, and I think one of the factors that could do that, which most people aren't taking into account, is a, a strong rebound in commodities. Mm-hmm. Some commodities it'll be a bear market rally for oil, for example, and some other commodities I think it'll be the first leg of a bull market. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd lump into that group gold, uh, corn, sugar, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that kind of upturn could do what? Of course, it could upset the uh, long bond market. And uh, I think also surprise a lot of people in a lot of regards. So I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of confusion this year, and it's, in fact, incubation mm-hmm. in, in major markets. And I think it will unleash in 2016 in a way that most people will then say, aha. <laughs> 
So you think the um, so you think crude oil? It would be uh, if we get a rally next year. It's likely to be a bear market rally. Still a long term bear. You don't see the ultimate bottom for the for no, crude. No, no. I think it, the rally. While you could consider it a bear market rally, and I, there's various ways I would define that as being one. Uh, for example, gold can break out on its annual momentum solidly. So can corn. So has sugar. Mm-hmm. Oil, just to even get to its trend structure and annual momentum, could rally up to into the 50s or 60s just to get there and then be repelled again. Now, I think oil could make its final low any time, uh, you know, low 30s, whatever. I, I'm not looking for 20. Uh, but the first rally won't be the one that sustains, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Though you might sure. have a $30 move out of oil and then pull back 20. <laughs> mm-hmm. and not make a new low, but still it, it doesn't sustain. Whereas other markets are in different technical conditions, so when they launch, they could stay launched. Uh, I would put gold in that category, corn is another one, and, and so forth. So it's, it's a mixed bag in the commodity arena, but I'm seeing enough evidence in commodity after commodity that with minor turns, you can get things rolling. And mm-hmm. I think that would shock a lot of people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's simply a function not of a strong world economy. It's a function of oversold commodity prices, period. As an asset right. class, it's been overly beat up. Uh, it reverse of what's happened to equities. An asset yeah. class has been overly priced. So it, it's just a matter of rubber band snapping. Wow. And reversion of the means, as you say. So it yes. looks like yes. you got it quite a ways, though, before you get to that 200-week uh, moving average. Uh, but then, uh, obviously, longer term, you do revert to the means, and that's, that's uh, pretty certain. So uh, what are we looking at, 1768 or 1771 next week? I think something like that. That's where the uh, average for, is, but that's not the, yeah. the, the trigger number to get there. Uh, and I uh-huh. think it would be a rapid process is to trade 10% over that average, because I have uh, mm-hmm. technical reasons. If we ever see 10% over that rising average, you will immediately go from the 10% over to the zero <laughs> to oh, the, to the average itself. Uh, All right. snapping point, in other words. All right, interesting. Well, we do have, uh, so uh, 2015, a transition year, 2016, maybe a year when we start to see some clarity in the direction of some of these markets, I guess, right? I, absolutely. That's exactly All what right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael. We do have to go uh, out of time already. It always goes so fast with you. Thanks for being with us once again. Uh, and uh, a happy holiday season to you. We'll look forward to having you back again, uh, if not next week, uh, then the first week in the new year. Thanks so much for being with that us. That would be great, Jay. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, folks. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Jeff Deist will be with us of the Mises Institute. He's the president there, and he's former chief of staff with uh, Congressman Ron Paul. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist on his ideas about markets and perhaps a little politics we'll ask Jeff about as well. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies created for use in diesel engines, 
The hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with us uh, Jeff Deist, a friend of mine going back a number of years. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute, um, and he was also uh, previously chief of staff to Congressman Ron Paul. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining me again. Thank you, Jay. It's good to talk to you. Always good to have you here. Now, I, I, we have such a short period of time, but I want to ask you a couple of points I'd like to ask you about. You know, we've heard much talk about the brilliance of Janet Yellen. Uh, Larry Fink of uh, BlackRock uh, was on CNBC, or I, I think it was on Bloomberg last week, praising her. The stock market went up for a couple of days during the rate rise uh, discussions. And uh, what I know that the people at your economists there at Mises don't, you know, they're not in the business of predicting market directions. They're more involved with economic theory and, and what's going on. But what is the sort of census of what, where we stand heading into 2016? How, what's the general feeling among your economists and yourself as well, Jeff, about what 2016 looks like? Well, see, I think the consensus is this, is that we are in a bizarro world. And what makes it all the more bizarre is that people at the Fed, including Yellen herself and other mainstream economists and others in the financial media won't admit this. They will not admit or sort of confess that there's an 800-pound gorilla uh, on our backs. And that gorilla is this extraordinary monetary policy era we find ourselves in. And they want to just sort of sweep this under the rug and act as though these little tinkering uh, technical changes represent some sort of policy when in fact they represent a tacit or an implicit admission that nobody really knows what the hell the Fed is doing. I mean, here we're talking about a, a, you know, a situation where I was listening to NPR the other day after Yellen announced the rate hike. And when I say rate hike, I mean a quarter point, a yeah. quarter of a percentage point in, this, in the targeted federal funds rate, the overnight interbank lending rate, right? It was recently as the 2008 crash that the Fed funds rate was up over was was over five percent. Wow! Okay? And and of course back in, in the time of real tight monetary policy, when Paul Volcker was Fed chairman in the seventies and early eighties, we had a Fed funds rate of nearly twenty percent. In other words, there was actually interest being paid among banks for the privilege of borrowing money, and that rate, of course, was reflected in interest uh, uh, earned by the general public in their savings accounts, for example. So the idea that going from a zero effective funds rate to a quarter point effective funds rate is somehow meaningful mm. 
is laughable. It's it's, yeah. it's entirely laughable. But what's what's not so funny is that the world you know waits in thrall for the for the Yellens and the Lagards and and even the uh, the Larry Summers of the world to chime in on all this. And it's really it's it's unseemly to put it mildly. And it's also crazy. It's crazy to think that a central authority can manipulate the price of money and the supply of money. And in doing so, you know, quadruple, more than quadruple the Fed's balance sheet uh, in just a few short years and not expect there to be negative consequences from this. I mean, that seems to me um, one of the great issues of our day that goes completely unnoticed. It's total hubris as far as I can see because, you know, first of all, what they do, they create that 800-pound gorilla out of their laboratory. Uh, it's, it's an animal that they don't have any control of or understand. Uh, and now we have, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you created all these bubbles, these misallocation of resources of capital. You don't allow capital to be priced, so I, I submit that it's a destruction of capitalism essentially. But, you know, speaking of money, real money, that's gold. The money that the markets have chosen, an asset-based money, not a liability-based money, not a money that's a political money, but a real market-driven money, gold. Uh, James Rickards uh, has some interesting things to to tell us about gold and the Chinese. With the limited amount of time that we have here, Jeff, could you pass that on? Some of the ideas and insights from James Rickards has to do with geopolitics as much as economics, if not more so. Yeah, I will say this. I think he's good, and, and he's definitely someone I read and, and would even pay to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, he's been talking uh, a long time about the IMF allowing the Chinese yuan into its basket of currencies, which are used to determine the price of SDR, special drawing rights. And he was actually predicting 2016 when that happened. It happened about a year earlier. Mm-hmm. But his, his idea the re- behind why this happened is that China, b- both in terms of Chinese government and Chinese households, have been buying and hoarding gold. In other words, gold has been flowing from the west to the east into China. And he posits that the idea behind this was not that the Chinese thought that gold was going to go way up in value relative to currencies and make them rich, or that gold thought that the Chinese thought gold was on the, the precipice of becoming real, actual, you know, transacted money again pending some crash. No, it's the idea that by having lots and lots of gold, they would have the power and the weight to demand a place at the IMF table, and in, in fact, they seem to have achieved this. So yes. it seems like this, this amassing of gold in China by China was a geopolitical move, and now the rest of the world has to sit up and take notice that after, you know, obviously decades and decades as a, an economic backwater relative to its size and population, you know, China, it, the yuan uh, now has to be seen uh, as, as a serious player in the world with the, with the pound sterling, with the dollar, with the euro, and with the Swiss franc. You know, at the same time, Jeff, if uh, what I read from Zero Hedge is accurate, the Russians and the Chinese have actually been using gold to transact uh, their business. Uh, to a great extent, according to one source that I read, the Russians have taken in a huge amount of gold from the Chinese in exchange for oil. And it seems as though we've we've read a lot about, you know, when the U.S. tried to put sanctions, actually put sanctions on Russia and, thrank, and threatened to take away the swift payment system from the Russians to freeze them out of the system, then they and the other BRIC countries, and in particular, I think, China and Russia, decided that they were going to set up an alternative payment system to the SWIFT system, uh, and, uh, and in fact, uh, it seems as though as, as the uh, attitude towards those nations have turned more bellicose from the United States, that in fact, 
that we're actually seeing perhaps, I don't know to what extent this is true or whether it, you know, it's any great amount, uh, but the amount of gold that Russia reportedly is taking in, uh, a large amount of it from China, it's a tremendous amount. It, it seems like it's not insignificant, let's put it that way. Uh, is it possible that maybe the BRICs are sort of using this, okay, if you guys want to play your game, we can set up ours, we'll compete with you, because they are setting up their institutions to compete with uh, with the IMF and the World Bank and so forth, right? Any, any thoughts on that? Well, there's no question about it. It's almost as though U.S. policymakers and U.S. politicians and U.S. central bankers don't think that their actions will have reactions around the world. Look, the world is preparing slowly to move away from the dollar as the world's reserve currency. I would right. suspect, and Mr. Rickard certainly believes, that SDRs, IMF's special drawing rights, are the coming reserve currency of the world. If that can't be held up in, you know, as a geopolitical reality, then maybe uh, gold and silver will once again emerge as, as the de facto reserve currency for all state-run currencies. But look, it, again, it's bizarre, land in the short term, it is not in the interest of the BRIC nations um, uh, to have the dollar suffer a pre- precipitous and fast decline, right. especially Japan and China, because they hold so many dollar-denominated assets. Uh, same with Brazil. They would hate to see all that money sort of flowing out of Brazil. But in the long run, it is clearly in the best interest of all of those countries to have the U.S. dollar no longer serve as the world's reserve currency. So, given that sort of seesaw reality, it becomes a game of musical chairs. How can we slowly let the air out of the dollar, and who will be the one holding the bag, uh, so to speak, and who will be able to dump their dollars earlier? Well, I think it's really very fascinating time, actually, in geopolitics and what's going on. The fact that the United States doesn't want to allow China to patrol its own sea lanes. You know, I can only imagine what we would feel like if the Chinese sent their navy over here into the Gulf of Mexico or on the Atlantic coast or the Pacific coast and started to determine and tell us that we couldn't have control of our own sea lanes. It's just, you know, it's really fascinating when you watch it uh, and, you know, how money fits into the whole equation. Uh, Jeff, with two minutes left here, I just want to ask you, since you have been in the political world, I know you have a, a great deal of disdain for it, uh, but... Do you see anything going on in the Republican Party here? I mean, it seems like a circus to me. But is, is anybody there, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, uh, anybody that would really, truly uh, change things for the better? Well, I think what you're seeing is disdain and even mocking and ridiculing of sort of the Bush-Clinton axis that people expected to dominate the 2016 election. So that in and of itself, I think, is a healthy thing. There's nothing wrong with populism per se. Obviously, it can be a double-edged sword. When you, you know, non-intellectualism can can quickly veer into hostility or anti-intellectualism. So I don't begrudge Trump's populism. And I do like the fact that, you know, here is this guy who is basically making fun of, of the political elites. He's ba- basically making a mockery of the two parties. And he's basically, I think, single-handedly sunk Jeb um, or sunk Jeb's yeah. chances. So for that alone, I think we should celebrate it. You know, people say, well, his policies are terrible or they're illibertarian. Look, presidential candidates do not have policies, people. Even today in a world of executive orders, there's still this pesky thing called Congress, right? Yeah. Um, Presidential candidates have promises which they never hold up. They have platitudes. 
they have narratives, they have stump speeches. But this idea that, well, Hillary's policies should be compared to, to you know, uh, Trump's yeah. policies. When people say that kind of stuff, I feel like I, I want to ask them if they're in kindergarten. Yeah, I mean, right. it's so childish and naive. I don't, we, we vote for tribal reasons, and you either love or hate Trump viscerally. You either love yeah. or hate Hillary viscerally. So that's, right. that's really the bottom line to me. All right. All right, Jeff, we'll have to let it go at that. We're, we're out of time, unfortunately. Thanks so much for joining me again. We'll have to do it more often again. It's always great to get your yes. insights. Politics and economics from the Mises Institute, thank you very much. Uh, so uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Well, right. folks, don't go away. We do have to go to break. When we come back, David McIlvaney of the McIlvaney Financial Companies will be with us, uh, and he'll have his views on what he calls a very bleak market situation as we head into 2016. Well, if you want to write that off and disc- uh, just uh, you know discount that notion that markets can go down, then don't listen. But if you think there might be a chance David's right, you might want to tune in, so don't go away. We'll be right back with David McIlvaney. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor-trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again David McIlvaney. He is the president of the McIlvaney Financial Companies, McIlvaney Wealth Management, and ICA. That's a 36-year-old precious metals brokerage firm. And I would strongly suggest that you avail yourself to some of the really interesting and important commentary that is available on a weekly basis that David provides. At You go to McIlvaney.com and you can click through to the weekly commentary or learn a lot of things, a lot more uh, of the services that are provided by David. And uh, I've known the McIlvaney name going way back. His father, I knew his father, spoke to him a few times. Uh, and so it was really great to have young David coming on the scene. And uh, David, thanks so much for joining me again. Great to be back with you. I'll just spell that last name real quick. M C A L V A N Y dot com is the best place. Uh, but yeah, great to be back with you, Jay. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks uh, for clarifying that. Um, yeah, it's it's a wonderful service, and and again, I just listened to your commentary last week. Uh, you just came back from Europe, and uh, understand that you took your seven-year-old son over to Europe with you, <clears throat> and uh, it seems as though David, you're sort of grooming him for the business too, sometime in the future, possibly if 
if he's led to go in that direction, I guess. And the values that we hold dear are the, the values that we convey on a consistent and routine basis with our families uh, day in and day out. And, uh, you know, I learned to travel and learned to think broadly from my father decades ago. I started traveling with him when I was three. And so to have my seven-year-old son along for the ride through Paris and Hamburg and in, in Brussels as we're doing business and sitting through business meetings and even making its way into certain depositories to look at thousands of gold coins, um, it's, it's taking theory and bringing some practical experience to uh, what we view as, as an education process. Yeah, and it's great that your son can go with you. I think it's, you know, it's it's most important uh, that the kids see that you're doing what you're saying. And anyway, uh, you just came back from Europe, and you had some very interesting comments about what you discovered there. And I would suggest, rather than take our time, people should go to McElvaney.com to listen to all of those comments, because it is a one-hour show, after all. A lot of depth, and it's just a lot of interesting things. I couldn't stop listening. But I want to ask you today, David, on the, you know, following this much ballyhooed interest rate increase of a quarter percent. You know, I turned on Bloomberg. I think it was the day following. The stock market responded positively and it went up, and the next day it went up. And I think it was uh, Wednesday morning, perhaps, when Larry Fink uh, was on Bloomberg, and he heads up the multi-trillion dollar uh, BlackRock hedge fund. And he was praising Janet Yellen for her brilliance. You know, she said he said, you know, it's just uh, Goldilocks kind of, uh, talk not too hot, not too cold, just right. He proclaimed, and now the stock market has turned south since then a little bit. Mr. Fink's remarks, uh, perhaps he wouldn't quite frame them the same way. I don't know, but um, how would you have responded to his so sort of his proclamation of uh, omniscience on the part of Janet Yellen? How would you respond to that, David? Well, the interesting thing is, you know, just by Friday this week, so late yesterday, early this morning. Uh, Larry Fink sends out this tweet, the U.S. economy is decelerating. And, yeah, I I think everybody wants to kind of suck up to the policymakers, but the reality is, um, you know, Fink's got a a large problem with his hedge funds. They're underperforming massively. Um, And I I think like any smart and engaged person at this point, you realize that there is a difference between uh, the financial economy and the rest of the economy. And, and there are segments within the real economy, not just the financial economy, which are already in recession. And so you know, for him to clearly state the U.S. economy is decelerating, well, of course it is. We're already in an industrial recession. And, mm-hmm. and again, there are pockets where that's, uh, you know, I think, going to become more of a consistent theme as we head into 2016. Yeah, so you, so you figure we're in a recession possibly this year, the entire economy? Uh, we may very well have entered into a recession four months ago. I mean, the yeah. National Bureau of Economic Research, of course, they'll tell us when officially we are, and they always look back. They don't point, pick a point in time and say, as of today, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, it has been 90 days or it has been 120 days or what have you. And industrial production numbers uh, have been awful. I mean, it, they, we, we haven't seen these kinds of industrial production numbers um, outside of recession, um, ever. So the, the, the idea that, that we, and again, maybe this is just an, an industrial recession, but I'm sorry, it's still a pretty decent part of our economy. Um, and yeah, I, th- I, think, I think we have some indicators that we're already in recession. 
So why do you think the Fed's raising rates now? I mean, uh, do, do you think they really believe the propaganda that they're giving us, that, uh, that the economy is healing and therefore it's strong enough to withstand? In fact, it needs to have a rate rise. Why do you think, could you speculate a little bit on what you believe the motives of the Fed might have been to raise rates in a, what is clearly, at least the way you and I see it, and a lot of other of my guests see it, a weakening economy? Why do you think they chose now? I don't think they wanted to raise rates. I think they had to raise rates because at this point, the, the credibility factor is, is very much on the line. Um, having skipped um, said move in September, uh, it was absolutely necessary to do something. Um, the 25 basis points is, is a fairly um, insignificant number. What, what the market is going to look at is the next several moves uh, to confirm whether there is a directional shift. And if there is no long-term directional shift, then it was a one-off event, and they were just kind of following through on what they had promised. Um, I, would, I would suspect that sometime in 2016, we not only go back to zero, but we go negative. And there's certainly been discussion amongst three or four of the Fed chiefs, uh, as well as Janet Yellen, that the, the negative rate territory uh, is, is, is certainly theoretically possible, and they're open to that if the circumstances require it. I think 2016 is going to require it. Negative rates. Uh, it's just so perverse. It seems so perverse. You know, one, one thing I wondered, David, you, you mentioned the credibility factor. I'm wondering if uh, possibly with the, uh, you know, the Chinese currency becoming more prominent, um, clearly the, the Russians and the Chinese stepping outside of or, or looking to compete with what I would say the petrodollar, setting up their own trading systems, their own banking system, putting in the uh, the institutions and the, the mechanics to do that. I read recently where the Russians uh, are importing huge amounts of gold from the Chinese in exchange for oil sales to the Chinese, thereby certainly stepping outside of the petrodollar system. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm also hearing that the Chinese are reducing their treasury holdings. I don't know if that, if that jives with, with your understanding or not. But if the Russians and the Chinese are stepping away from treasuries, which you would, could understand they might do given the geopolitical issues, uh, do you think that one factor might be the need to make the dollar more attractive by raising rates? Yeah, I think certainly that could be a part of the story is, is you know, on a relative basis, we are more attractive. You look at the 10-year treasury, and we're far more impressive than Spanish paper, Italian paper, most of anything in, in, in Europe. And at this point, there is some concern about emerging market debt. So, um, you know, we, we do look very good and uh, in a rising interest rate environment become even more compelling uh, as a place to park money. Um, the issue of, of you know, petrodollar status, you know, we're undermining that ourselves in, in to some degree um, with the amount of oil that we're producing at present. That doesn't mean that we'll stay that way. We don't know how long we'll be able to pump at 9.3 uh, million barrels per day, but that's, that's up considerably from the 5 million barrels that we were producing in 2008. Um, and, and it just means that we're importing less, and as we're importing less oil, it also means that there's less treasuries that are being purchased by uh, our, our petro trade partners. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that is that's a reality is is that we're sort of cutting off our nose to spite our face in that respect. Um, the Chinese and the Russians um, know great love for us long term. Um, you see a lot more compatible in terms of not only worldview but you know sort of command and control dynamics. 
um, in both of those places. And yes, they are hungry for, as I think the rest of the world is, uh, a less dollar-centric and less uh, U.S. foreign policy-centric uh, globe. So um, we're, we're seeing gradual shifts. I don't know that that's going to be the centerpiece in 2016 and 2017 in mm -hmm. terms of riling the markets. I, I tend to think it's going to be issues like market liquidity, um, where we, we discover that $38 trillion in, in assets that are in open-ended products um, where clients who believe they have instant liquidity may in fact find they don't. <laughs> um, you know, $1.2 trillion in emerging market debt is in open-ended funds here in the U.S. And again, it's, it's just this notion that I can always click uh, my mouse and liquidate any quantity of assets that I want and move to cash. Um, that's presumptive, uh, and, and that may be true in normal times, but I think we're stepping into uh, fairly abnormal markets where the surprise might be um, there's no bid and no one offering to, to buy the asset that you're offering to sell. Well, we're certainly seeing some illiquidity in the junk bond market, aren't we? We are, and, and I think that's already spreading into um, commercial paper and corporate bonds. So it's, it's not just the far reaches of credit quality, um, but you know, we're watching corporate cash flows diminish, and that means that their ability to service a, a much larger base of debt um, is going to be challenged in the next year or two. So I would guess that by the third quarter of next year, uh, we're seeing major stress and strain and maybe even a repeat of some of the sort of liquidity crisis type events that we had circa 2007, 2008. Mm. Oh, we can hope not. But um, in any event, you know, certainly the, the big corporations have been purchasing, they've been borrowing a lot of money at these very cheap, low interest rates and then going out and buying their stocks and that's uh, I think it was Goldman Sachs somebody at Goldman Sachs last week was talking about uh, how they expect that to continue into 2016 should provide more fuel for up, ever rising stock prices but I, I have to wonder with the rising interest rates and you know reports that some of the most credit worthy companies their balance sheets are becoming much more leveraged do you think this can go on much longer David that this this um, this part of the stock market that can keep it rising. Now, I think I think debt to EBITDA numbers are are not pretty already, and so if you want to increase debt, um, I, I think that's going to be a pretty significant problem. Um, I would have to disagree with Goldman on that because you already have falling profits, declining sales, and you're you're already. I think 2015 got you to the edge of what you can do in terms of financial engineering. And, and it's, you know, it's funny. We started the year 2015 with very few people realizing how many games had been played in terms of share buybacks in order mm. to improve earnings per share uh, reports. But by the end of this year, everyone pretty well knows. I mean, it's almost on a weekly basis. I'll hear um, uh, you know, a Bloomberg or a CNBC say something about this perverse behavior and, and how you know, it's helped, but it can't go on forever. And I, I think everyone's fairly aware. Um, it, it's just, Jay, to me, there's things that you can do when people aren't looking. As long as you're operating in the dark, there's yeah. things that you can do to some effect. But when those activities are brought into the light, now everyone understands that there's a certain corrupted nature to your earnings per share figures. When, when, when corporations get to the fourth quarter and say, hey, hoorah, we did it again. We beat expectations. Yeah. Now there's this growing consensus of investors who say, that's a bunch of garbage. We, yeah. we know how you got there. We didn't last year, but now we are appraised. 
closed, and we're going to have to judge you accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, well, that's that's healthy for the long term. Of course, it's it's painful in the process for people who are caught in the in the middle of it. But you know, I have wondered, David, with the massive amount of quantitative easing that's gone on, not just from the Federal Reserve, but from you know the, from the, the Bank of Japan, uh, the, the Chinese, the Europeans. Everybody's printing money, creating money out of nothing, throwing it into the into the banking, into their respective banking systems, and yet. You know, a lot of people would have predicted we would have massively higher prices. Now we've seen, of course, as you pointed out, the the financial markets have have bubbled up for sure. But we're seeing really quite substantial declines in commodities and prices of items that are directly related to the real economy. But why do you think that we're not seeing the real economy benefit or we're not seeing growth in the real economy as a result of this massive amount of money creation? Well, I mean, part of it is because you have not impacted wages. So, you know, you, you, you are not seeing the man in the street empowered with greater income. And, in, and the average guy or gal in the street doesn't have a huge balance sheet that's getting a boost. So, you know, as, as money has been created, um, you know, this goes back to John Law and, and, and one of the people who were originally a part of the scandal um, back then, uh, Richard Cantillon, and what has been described mm-hmm. as the Cantillon effect, where you have... You know, the smart people understand it first. They understand the nature of inflation. They understand the nature of money printing. And they start scrambling to protect. And you're already seeing what you would view as high levels of inflation um, anticipated by really smart money. What do I mean by that? Let me give you one example. Um, it's very common for people to buy art. I understand that. I mean, particularly when if you're in the 1% or 10th of 1% of mm-hmm. how very wealthy people around the world. But you know something's not quite right in the art market when you're paying 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars for the work of a living artist who's still producing. <laughs> you don't know how finite the supply is. You still don't know how they'll be judged by time. And yet that's what you're seeing is an exaggeration in value in places where most art collectors would tell you, you gotta wait until the guy or gal's dead before you can really know if it's a collection uh, that, that, that you want to build upon. So I, I think the wealthy are getting it. They're moving into um, very, you know, whether it's art or, uh, you know, high-end apartments in Manhattan, the, these are the places that have been inflated the most. Um, but the man on the street, no, you don't get any benefit from the money that's been printed because it's boosted asset prices, surely. But again, Looking, looking at the average net worth of Americans, let's call it somewhere between one hundred and fifty and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. There's not much to get boosted Mm-mm. relative to the one percent who might have ten, twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred million dollars. And yes, most of it's in assets that have doubled in price in the last several years. Your outlook for the uh, for the equity market then going forward in two thousand sixteen and and the debt markets, I guess I gather or not terribly optimistic a very bleak uh, would would be how I would describe it and and again I think we've gotten past peak profits I think we've gotten past uh, the earnings games and the financial engineering um, take IBM as an example you know they've done their best these are the guys but when it comes to financial engineering nobody does it better I mean they're, they're the kinds of games that they have played from an accounting perspective um, are absolutely genius and yet they've run out of rabbits to pull out of the hat, mm. and, and you're seeing that show up in their results. So 
I think the financial engineering games are at an end, and unless we see a considerable rebound uh, in, in, in the real world economy, um, the financial economy is on the break. So you're uh, from the top, or they say from the consumers up. I mean, we're not seeing consumers. The top line growth is not there, f- and it has not been there throughout this so-called recovery for the most part, right? And th- it seems to me that the consumers, you know, we pushed them to the, to the breaking point pretty much with the housing bubble. Uh, you know, the ATM, using houses as ATM machines, and people have gone to pretty much the limit. Is the consumer is the consumer paying down some debt? Is there some room there for him to start spending again? Or do you think this is a long-term decline in the consumer's strength? I mean, we're seeing a middle class that's, that's sort of being hollowed out. Uh, fewer and fewer, more and more people on food stamps. It, it just does look kind of bleak from that end. So, it, it, you know, it seems to me that if the Keynesians, if we're really practicing Keynesian economics, they would have put money in the hands of the masses instead of the bankers, and then you could have some from bottoms up, I mean, in theory, not that I'm in favor of it, but but do you think the consumer, because it seems to me that we need to see consumers come back and be healthy in order to see a broad-based economic growth. Would you agree with that? And do you think hey, that I, that's possible? I, I, I would, and I think it is possible, but probably more on a 2017-2018 time frame, and it assumes that oil prices stay low through the duration of that time because, you know, look, $2 or less per gallon, um, it does translate into an energy dividend for the average family across America. Um, The reality is we haven't seen it impact retail sales uh, considerably in in 2015. I think that's in part due to what you said. I think we're seeing deleveraging. We're seeing the average family say, you know, I probably ought to get caught up a little bit on my credit Mm -hmm. card payments, pay a little bit more than the minimum. And so we're not seeing extra economic activity. They're playing catch up. And I think it'll take them several years to sort of clear the decks and feel more confident and comfortable that they're not facing, facing a pink slip and, and can actually maybe add to the debt side of their balance sheet again uh, or spend from, uh, more ideally, what would be savings accumulating. Yeah, and you mentioned... And I think there's one other thing. You, you, you mentioned that you know, this, is, this has been to the benefit of, of, of banks, Wall Street firms, and not necessarily the man in the street. Further evidence of that is, is this week's move by the Fed uh, to increase the interest paid on excess reserves of depository institutions. We went oh. from 25 basis points to 50 basis points. Oh. And this, in my mind, is absolutely asinine. If you want to see money come out of the banks and get lent to small businesses, then take away the carrot, which is keeping deposits there, risk-free deposits at the Fed. Take that number to zero or, in fact, charge institutions for overnight money at, at the Fed. Instead, they raise it to 50 basis points. I mean, this is, this is patently oh, absurd. Yeah. It suggests to me that the interest is not really in the real-world economy. The interest of the central bank never has been. What that signals to me more than anything else, is that the central bank is taking care of their own, a network of bankers, and that's all that matters to them is the financial economy. That will ultimately come back to haunt them because an economy is never, has never, will be sheerly or simply a financial entity. There's more to it than that. Sure. No, I wasn't aware of that, and that is, uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. I, I, that is, that, that, that just seems so clear that the Fed is taking care of its own, uh, it's, well, I guess we shouldn't be shocked by that. But, you know, David, the fact that that isn't being pointed out in the mainstream media, I think, is, shows that, there, that the media is basically in cahoots with, uh, with the establishment, obviously, which is, I guess, also not a surprise. 
this is this is one of the realities is that what the decision that happened this week it, it was not really the decision that moves the interest rate curve you know, Stanley Fisher and, and, and the folks who are deciding what the interest payments are on excess reserves they are the ones who are going to move the yield curve and so I mean I think I think Wall Street and the guys in the credit markets who understand that are far more concerned about the interest paid on excess reserves than they are, you know, an insignificant 25 bump basis point bump, um, because that, that's that's not enough to move the yield curve considerably. Um, so it, 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 we live in very very interesting times, and I think I think people are are wise to not necessarily make their investment decisions on the basis of a, of, of a recent headline. Oh, that's for sure. Well, David, given your sort of bleak outlook, what are you telling your your clients these days to do as we enter this new year? There's three things clearly that you have to do. One is raise cash. Two is make sure that you have um, enough ounces of the physical metal um, to make a difference when push comes to shove. And three, every opportunity that you get to find an asset class that provides healthy income um, take advantage of it. And, and by healthy income, I mean two things. One, healthy in terms of the total scale. But two, um, if you're going to see five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent returns in terms of cash flow, look for high quality as well. Now, that may seem um, like it's an impossibility, but I think it can be done, just not inside the publicly traded markets. Um, if you can find real estate that gives you an eight to twelve percent yield, you know this is a place where you need to you need to be buying not only a real asset uh, but something that gives you some cash flow. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. That has to be a priority moving forward. Whether it's 2016, 17, 18, up to 20, I think by the time we get to 2020, if you haven't organized your cash flows, you're going to be in a world of hurt. So those three things: um, cash flow that you can control, cash that you have some of it outside of the banking system, and then the best denomination of cash also in your physical possession, right. um, which, which I consider ounces of, of, of gold and silver. Um, I think these things are going to serve you very, very well. It's been nine years since we've been anywhere in, 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 the, in the mode of normalizing interest rates, and all asset classes have become addicted to this cheap credit. I'd hate to think what the consequences are as we begin or if we begin to normalize. I've got to believe believe that it's horrendous, not only in the stock and bond market, but maybe in the real estate market as well. Oh, and that's why you need to be outside of the banking system, though. Uh, cash outside of the banking system, as you say, and ounces of gold and silver outside of the banking system, obviously. Good advice for sure. Uh, and in terms of some of these ideas of where you might get healthy cash flow, I suppose uh, those are some of the ideas that you pass along to your clients from time to time? Well, sure. Yeah, no, there's there's no doubt about that. And and I think probably the most frustrating issue in in the midst of that is, and, and I was on a board um, for a college, uh, you know, and still am on that board for for their investment committee. Mm-hmm. And this last week, I had to beat them down from investing in junk bonds. They're like, well, we need the yield. Oh, I said, you oh, can't oh, do oh, this. Oh, oh, I'm to put a million and a half dollars into bonds, high yield bonds, and they want to get rid of all of their gold. They oh. wanna, I mean, it, it, it's 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 all of the wrong things at the wrong time. And do you know what I find? I find that the, the thing that mitigates against investor success is having enough patience. Yes. Having enough patience. Things don't happen on our time frames, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> and when we need them to. Um, but, but that's okay. I mean, it, it, it just 
if you've found the right things to be invested in, um, practice uh, practice patience, and I think you will be uh, duly rewarded in good time. Well, that's a really good a really good advice, David. Thank you so much for being with us. And again, folks, go to McIlvany, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y dot com. Uh, catch up with David's weekly broadcast. It is just chock full of great information and guidance. So uh, thank you so much, David, for being with us and look forward to doing it again sometime in the not distant future. And a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and your family and all your friends. All the best to you. Thank you, Jake. Great to be back with you again. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Next week, uh, we will talk about uh, geopolitics and the markets with Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. And Richard Mayberry will be with us. Uh, He writes the excellent newsletter called Richard Mayberry's Early Warning Report. So until next week, uh, best wishes uh, for a Merry Christmas and God's blessings to each and every one of you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 